Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. My name is Matt and thank you all so much for being with me today. If you want to hit the like or subscribe button, that would be awesome. You can also tweet me at Matthew Laporte or comment below and that would also be awesome. Today we're going to talk about Iovance Biotherapeutics. They're a tumor infiltrating lymphocyte company, which is a cell-based therapy for cancer. I think this is going to be a good follow-up video to some of the previous videos I've done related to cancer or other cell-based therapies. We're also going to touch on minor stories related to Sarepta as well as Amarin. And yeah, it's been, uh, it's been hot for me down here in San Diego the last few weeks. So if you can hear the noise of the fan in the background, I'm sorry about that, but I'd rather have that in the background than just see me profusely sweating right here on, uh, on camera. Anyway, with that, let's, uh, let's get into the news. And the first thing I want to touch on since the last time we spoke is an escalation of the trade war. I did mention in the previous video to look for an escalation in this trade war because I know there was some risk off in that area and now it's right back up. We saw, I think, two two or three weeks ago now that China announced that they were going to place either 5, 10, or 25% tariff on $75 billion worth of U.S. goods and these would come into effect either September or December depending on what it was. We then saw that later in the day Trump responded with increasing the already announced tariffs of 25% to 30% on $250 billion worth of goods, and then an increase from 10% to 15% on the remaining $300 billion worth of Chinese goods. Now, this increases the estimated reductions in yearly GDP. Originally, it was around 0.6, and now these increased percentages might make it closer to 0 0.7, 0 0.8 per year in reduced GDP growth. But I think the real concern here is we're not sure whether either side is going to concede. It seems like there's just going to be escalation over escalation until both economies are just destroyed. Now, is that a realistic concern? Probably not. Uh, a lot of people think that Xi in China is just waiting Trump's re-election. And if that does happen and Trump is not re-elected, then we could see a big increase in the stock market from that, just from a trade war perspective. If Trump is re-elected, we could see China come to the table and make a trade deal and then reduce all of these tariffs back to where they were or reduce them entirely and, and get back to our free trade dogma. But I think this uncertainty related to uh, not knowing when the trade war will end and how far it will escalate is really what the market is pricing in here. So if we can see some kind of deal. I'm sure there would be a, a rally to all-time highs again. But uh, until then, the market's going to be very uneasy going, going forward. The other thing to be concerned about is the inverted yield curve. This is when you plot the different yields based on maturity date of U.S. Treasuries. And we see now that the, the two-year yield has, is higher than the 10-year yield, even though it's still floating around zero. Uh, so for that reason, people are very concerned that the indicators of a recession are coming. Now, the data from the U.S. doesn't really look like a recession's coming just yet. But we do need to pay attention to those leading indicators, and one of those might be the yield curve inversion. So we see that the chances of a rate cut, according to the investing.com federal funds monitor, is, uh, is very high. Uh, a lot of people think that this isn't going to be enough to continue to propel the U.S. economy forward. I'm not really sure either. A lot of people are calling for early 2020 recession, but basically I'm going to be diligent in looking at the data and seeing whether or not it's realistic to anticipate a recession. And for me, that just means taking out some cash and uh, keeping it on the sidelines, which I have been doing lately, even though I've not been immune to the, 
downturn that biotech has suffered from. But that's basically where, we at, where we're at in the economy. Now, if we look at the biotech sector in particular, I wanted to start off with Sarepta because they received a complete response letter from the FDA regarding the approval of Golodirsin. And Golodirsin is a follow-on technology to Edeplirsin, which was approved in 2016, but this one looked at a different mutation. So muscular dystrophy is a combination of different mutations. Some people have one, some people have another. And Golodirsin would have been a different mutation, but a similar exon skipping technology. And the CRL generally cites two concerns according to Sarepta. One is the risk of infection related to the intravenous infusion port, and two, renal toxicity seen in preclinical models of Golodirsin. Now, the company says that renal toxicity was only seen in preclinical models at doses that were tenfold higher than those used in clinical studies, and that the renal toxicity was not observed in study 4053-101, on which the application for Golodirsin was based. So this makes the company very suspicious, and they said themselves that they were blindsided by this because they had meetings before with the FDA, and I'm sure these things came up, things like infection related to the IV infusion port, and the renal toxicity issues at that stage preclinically would have come up much earlier than the approval process down here. So it's fair for the company to be surprised at this and wonder what's up, and I think everyone is a little shocked. And the reason is that they don't cite the obvious reason that people thought they would receive a CRL, which is that Golodirsin, there's no clinical benefit data to support approval. And this was the same issue that Edeplirsin faced in 2016. And I encourage everybody to look at the Wikipedia for it. There's some interesting history here that, that obviously plays a role. And for the approval of Edeplirsin, they were able to show a similar thing. They showed a slight increase in the protein but they weren't able to show a real significant clinical benefit to these patients. So the FDA actually ended up approving the drug as opposed to the recommendation of the advisory committee, which recommended against approval. And what the FDA asked is that they start a clinical benefit study to eventually submit this data showing that there's a clinical benefit to Edeplirsin. Now, the company's been slow to generate this data, and they've also submitted this NDA of Golodirsin without clinical benefit data. So people are saying that, oh, they're just using these reasons as a cover, and this is really just payback for the Edeplirsin approval in 2016. And I think there is some merit to this, but it's such a strange thing because I don't understand why the FDA would cite fake reasons for the CRL when the obvious reason is that they want clinical benefit data. So instead, Sarepta is now going to have to argue why the risk of infection uh, related to the IV infusion port and renal toxicity aren't real issues. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of the follow-on meetings with the FDA, because the FDA is going to have to give them legit reasons why these are significant problems. And really, like, the IV infusion port is used for, for so many drugs that have been approved by the FDA. I think this is going to be very hard to defend against and even renal toxicity that's only seen in preclinical models. So I think the FDA is going to have a hard time defending this, but Sarepta is going to have to work with the FDA to figure out a way forward. And I think until we get some sort of clarity from that, the future revenue for Sarepta is put in serious jeopardy. They have another follow-on compound called Casimircin, and they're hoping to file that NDA in Q3 of this year, so you know, anytime soon. But I assume they're going to delay that until they see more information from the FDA 
to to better the application or at least you know change it up so that their likelihood of approval is much higher the other thing is that people think that Sarepta might not be forthright about the complete response letter and the FDA has said in the past that companies are creative in the way that they're able to change the language of the CRLs to make it seem less negative for investors. So that is a possibility, and it would be good if the FDA could reconsider that policy of not themselves giving a press release, because companies aren't held to the same account that the FDA is, and I think it would be good to get um, an honest take from the FDA themselves. But for this, it doesn't really help us. I think that the microdystrophin gene therapy on which a lot of hype is generated isn't going to be um, affected too much. They're going to make sure to include clinical benefit data for, for this NDA, but of course the finishing touches for this study aren't going to come for at least a year. But in the short term, Sarepta's revenue is definitely put into jeopardy. I think once there is some clarity from the FDA, people will be eased and, and some money will flow into it again, but I'm definitely not going to buy anything. Would I sell if I was holding during it? Probably not, because I would think that Sarepta is going to be a good long-term hold. But the haircut they received from this news is definitely unfortunate, and uh, and hopefully the FDA can can come back with some good good feedback. Moving on, I wanted to talk about Amarin because we heard this weekend that the European Society for Cardiology or the European Atherosclerosis Society guidelines for the management of dyslipidemias is recommending that fish oils, specifically icosapin ethyl, be used in high-risk patients with triglyceride levels between 135 and 499 milligrams per deciliter despite statin treatment. So this is very positive, and we've seen these things before. This comes on the heels of the American Diabetes Association guideline update recommending that Vasipa be used for reducing triglycerides, and we also got word from the European Medicines Agency, and they confirmed that a mixture of omega-3 products are ineffective at preventing further heart problems after heart attack. They were emphasizing here that Vasipa capsules are not a mixture of omega-3, but a single molecule drug containing EPA, which is the active compound that's involved in reducing triglycerides to in some way or another. And I think the, the mechanism of action is still unsure at this point, but for our purposes, it's not really necessary. So this uh, this comes at a good time because the company's been sold off quite a bit in regards to the announcement of an advisory committee, and that advisory committee is happening on November 14th of 2019. So definitely something to watch here, but I think on market open on September 3rd, we should see an increase in the stock price because this is just going to increase the usage and the prescriptions have still been going up steadily. So I, th I really think that it's worth getting into the company now before the approval of it in, you know, maybe early 2020 or late 2019, but definitely a positive ad com is going to be good and it's going to be a big mover for the stock. A lot of people are concerned that the label might not in include language that suggests that it's going to reduce your chance of major cardiovascular outcomes, but like I've said in previous videos, I think the CVOT study speaks for itself and that the FDA is going to have no problem, or as well as the advisory committee is going to have no problem with that language, given that the work Amarin has done to, to show a clear benefit of this compound. So we're going to leave it at that today and talk about the major story of today, which is Iovance Biotherapeutics. And what the company is based on is the use of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes for the treatment of all sorts of different cancers. 
but it is of note that there are solid tumors in particular, and this is one issue that cell therapy has struggled with up to date. CAR-T, not great in solid tumors, but we have seen a lot of different cell therapy companies come on the scene that are actually trying to tackle this specifically. And I think Iovant is one of them that is kind of probably leading the way, I would say. And others that I've mentioned, you know, I've talked about marker therapeutics using their uh, multi-TAA to treat pancreatic cancer. Fate Therapeutics is currently using their off-the-shelf iPSC-derived NK cell to treat solid tumors. And Iovance here is using TILS, T tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, I'll call them TILS, to treat metastatic melanoma as well as cervical cancer. These are the immediate indications they're looking for, but then they're also going to follow up with head and neck cancer, ovarian sarcomas, pancreatic, as well as bladder. But those are longer-term goals here. And I wanted to do a shout out to the actual inventor of this because this isn't a new idea. The paper in the New England Journal of Medicine actually came out in 1988 and Iovance has revised it and updated it and they also have a lot of patents themselves to support the use of TILs in patients. So they traded on Friday, they closed at 21.01 per share and they have a market cap of 2.6 billion with a net cash position of around 377 million. And to talk about the cells that we're actually referring to, and tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, that, that language is very broad. When we think of lymphocytes in general, we usually think of B cells or T cells, part of the adaptive immune system. But really, when they're doing this prep, it's a very crude prep. So it's going to include cells like eosinophils, basophils, neutrophils, as well as monocytes or macrophages as well. But the majority cell type is going to be B or T cells especially. And there's various ways that they do this, but basically the process is here. And I'm not going to go into too much detail. Suffice to say that they take a biopsy or they resect some of the tumor. They dissect it into a media. And this media is able to select for the actual lymphocytes and not the cancer cells. So they have some process of doing that. They take those lymphocytes away from the, the cancer cells and they expand them via exposure to IL-2 as well as OKT-3 and ex vivo they're able to do this apparently very reliably to get uh, 10 to the power of 9 to 10 to the power of 11 tills. After they do the ex vivo expansion they then uh, treat the patients after the patient has undergone a non-myeloablative lymphodepletion and these patients are adjunctively treated with IL-2 as well which is supposed to support and maintain the active tills in the patient. So the processing time is around 22 days, which is on par with other types of, of treatments, same as kind of marker, same as kind of CAR-T that we've seen. And this here is just another diagram. They excise the tumor, get the tills out, expand them, and then infuse the patients with them. And they're also trying to figure out whether or not the they can cryopreserve these tills and infuse them into the patient. And like I said, the two indications that they're looking for is relapsed refractory metastatic melanoma as well as cervical cancer that's, that's advanced. So the first data I'm going to show, which is right here, is the melanoma data. And basically in heavily pretreated patients, so these are patients that have gone through first line and second line and are now here, they've been treated on average 3.3 mean therapies. The objective response rate is 38%, and this includes two complete responses, 23 partial responses, 28 people that had stable disease, or 42%. So they lump all of these patients in together as the disease control rate, which is 80%. So out of the 66 patients, 
53 of them were able to control their disease with the rest either progressing or not responding. The median follow-up here is 8.8 months, but what I did find interesting was the mean tills that were infused. And I like to compare this to the other companies that I've looked at, and here they infuse 27.3 times 10 to the 9 cells. And for reference, this is two orders of magnitude higher than what Gilead or Novartis does for their CAR-T therapy, and three orders of magnitude larger than what Marker gives. So it's a lot of cells that these patients are getting. And I think this is, you know, there's a reason why they're doing this many cells. And it also makes me hope that Marker is a little more willing to increase their cell number and they might see a, a better effect, even though we're still waiting for that updated pancreatic cancer data that's probably going to come a lot later. So maybe this is enough for them, but I, uh, I did talk about this in, in previous video. So an objective response rate of 38% is very good compared to the standard of care. I think the standard of care at this many prior therapies is, is closer to like 10%. So this would be a huge benefit for patients. So if we look at the breakdown of each patient here, we can see on the x-axis is the time since infusion and on the y-axis is the patient number. And we see here that, you know, a, a lot of patients have been on this treatment for quite a while. And uh, a lot of them have, have had a partial response and they're just kind of sitting here. So we're kind of waiting to see whether or not they're going to get progressive disease or complete response. And I think because the median duration of response has not happened yet, we, we should see an update in data um, before the submission of the NDA, which is expected to happen in late 2020. If we look at the side effects, one thing that I noticed here is that it does compare to CAR-T. The side effects aren't similar, but they do have very high-grade side effects. So I have the, them listed here for CAR-T. 95% um, of patients had a grade 3 or above adverse event. 93% of them had any grade cytochrome release syndrome, and 64% of them had any grade neurologic event. It's kind of similar here with the TIL therapy, except it's more a blood condition that they end up getting. So thrombocytopenia is in 80% of patients. Uh, a lot of them get anemia or neutropenia. So it seems like these adverse events do occur here, and it could be related to the number of cells that IOVANCE is treating in these patients. But they, they put a chart on the right side here that says that the adverse events are very concentrated in the immediate time right after treatment and then they go away after they've been after the body I guess has had time to adjust to all these cells going through and this could also be due to some of the non-myeloblative lymphodepletion that the patients have to go through so it's relatively strenuous and I guess the fact that a lot of these are grade 3 and 4 does concern me but the fact that CAR-T was able to get approved despite all of this and um, given that these patients are left with so few options I think it's not going to stand in the way from them getting approval. So that was metastatic melanoma, and then I wanted to touch on the cervical cancer data, and I'm only giving a snapshot of their programs here in the effort to not make this video last forever, but there are other programs that they're doing. So the cervical cancer data here, they saw that out of 27 patients, three of them had a complete response, which is 11%. Partial response is 9 out of 27, which is 33%, to give a, a disease control rate of 85% because 11 of those had stable disease. So this is very positive in advanced cervical cancer, patients that have very limited options after the initial lines of treatment have gone through. 
again here they say that the median duration of response has not been reached yet so there should be a, a follow-up to this so we see the final data the number of tills infused is very high as well 28 times 10 to the 9 which is is very high but it seems like the side effects even at this level are quite manageable so that's a good thing to see so that's the data from their two major programs and i did want to pivot into the market potential here what we're looking at here is a best-in-class therapy for second-line or third-line metastatic melanoma and recurrent metastatic or persistent cervical cancer. So that was the, the distinction that they make here, that it's not advanced cervical cancer, it's this recurrent metastatic or persistent, which is a broad category. The platform and process itself, I thought I would mention, these, these companies that are looking at cell-based therapies it's very much an art and less of a science, I would say. There is scientific methodology to it, and they do have to follow within these GMP guidelines. But to think that a company can just come in and duplicate it without any effort, I think, is naive. A lot of the personnel that are involved in these companies are critical to making sure that the cells look the right way under the microscope so that everything is, is fit to code. And they have ways of measuring these kinds of things using flow cytometry or other kinds of analyses. But I think uh, to have a company come in and try and replicate it to the exact extent is, uh, is difficult. So I think that even though they might have patent expiry, that they could hold on to a lot of their market share because of that difficulty in, in process development. Now, I don't want to say that it's impossible to duplicate it, but it seems like most other companies company like say Xiofarm that's also looking at using TILs, they're focusing on glioblastoma and Marker for instance is looking at blood cancers or pancreatic cancer. So these companies exist but given the segmentation of the cancer market it seems like Iovance is going to be kind of alone at least for, for a large period of time where they can capitalize on this. So for relapsed and refractory metastatic melanoma, there's around 91,000 diagnoses in the USA per year. So around 6,000 of them are on second-line therapy, around 5,000 are on third or fourth-line therapy. And the reason why these are relevant is that the approval that Iovance is going to be seeking is going to be dependent on whether or not the cancers are BRAF positive for mutation or BRAF wild type. If it's BRAF wild type, the patients are going to be treated with Iovance at the second line. And if they're BRAF mutants, the second line therapy would be treatment of a BRAF inhibitor, which has shown success in this cancer in the past. So Iovance wouldn't come in until the third or fourth line therapy. Now, if we assume a price of around 200000 per year, and I use that because we see that checkpoint inhibitors go for around 150 k per year, whereas CAR-T is around 400 k per year. So... I even think that 200k per year is relatively stringent as a model here because the 400k that, that CAR-T seeks, and even though CAR-T's process might be more intense because there is gene editing involved, I think that $200,000 per year, or at least per treatment, is a reasonable price point for them. And for that, I assume around a peak sales of $1 billion, around $22 per share this is worth given the number of shares that Iovance has. And we can also compare this to what the BRAF inhibitors have garnered over the years. And the global peak sales for Zelboraf, which is a BRAF inhibitor, reached 354 CHF, it's the Swiss dollar here, 354 million in 2013. And that is only a small subset of patients that has the BRAF mutation here. So I really think it is reasonable to expect that Iovance could reach $1 billion per year in peak sales.
Now, moving on to recurrent metastatic or persistent cervical cancer, there's around 13,000 diagnoses of cervical cancer per year. Around 30% of advanced patients relapse. So if we assume a similar price point, I, I give a peak sales around $350 million per year for about $8 per share related to the specific share price that Iovance could garner. And with that, it gives around a fair, fair valuation price, in my estimation, of around 28 to, say, like $35 per share. This is all, there's all many assumptions that go into modeling this stuff, so take this all with a grain of salt. But I do think the company is undervalued even at this $2.6 billion valuation. And I did not even talk about the other programs that they have going on. They're looking at head and neck cancer uh, relatively soon, as well as combining the TILs with checkpoint inhibitors at an earlier line therapy and comparing that to just checkpoint inhibitors on their own for a lot of these cancers. So I think that altogether that there's a good chance that the TILs could work in a different environment like that. So for ongoing catalysts related to the melanoma and cervical cancer, we should see a durability update in melanoma at the end of this year with the BLA filing expected in the second half of 2020. They're doing a cryopreservation study on a fourth cohort with around 75 patients, and that's going to finish enrollment in Q1 of 2020. So probably expect data at the end of 2020 as well. And then there's supposed to be a phase two cervical cancer update in the first quarter of 2020 with, again, the BLA expected in the second half of 2020. So they should come pretty close together. And like I mentioned, there's other studies going on, first-line patients, co-administration with checkpoint inhibitors. They're going to also look at hematologic cancers. They're also looking at other solid tumors as well. So my overall verdict is that I would like to take a position in the company, and I'm going to wait for a dip. I think the economy in and of itself is going to give some opportunities to buy on a dip as we go into 2020, so I'm going to make an effort to look for that and uh, and take a small position there, even though I do want a large amount of cash on the sidelines, because like I said, economy's wild, anything can happen. So this week, I'm gonna look for a follow-through on tariffs on September 1st. I think the USA and, and even China agreed that they're gonna institute tariffs on September 1st, so we're gonna see whether or not that goes through or not. There's an at advisory committee for Amune on September 13th. I, I may do a video before then, but I'm just putting it down here just in case. There's going to be an FOMC meeting on September 18th, so look for, to see whether or not that rate cut occurs. And then I have another list of companies that, uh, that I'm going to look to. And it has been a while, so I figured I would do a portfolio update. And to give an overall summary, things have definitely taken a turn in August. Uh, Nash companies continue to suffer. Amune is in a rough place right now, although I do expect that the advisory committee is going to turn this around. Bluebird has suffered as well, um, including, and then Amarin, we talked about that. Regenix Bio has sold off as well, even though I may take an, a little bit more of a position here to lower my cost basis while I can. Uh, I also need to look into Catalyst Bio again and see what's going on there. But on the whole, I'm around negative 0.7% on the year. Everything did sell off quite a bit in, in August, that's for sure, and we can see here also by the volatility, but a lot of that volatility has, uh, has gone down, although you know, if it's announced in the next hour that the tariffs are instituted, I expect the market to take a serious downturn from there. Everybody's going to be waiting to see whether or not one side says, oh, we're, we're now chatting, we're in meetings, then the market's going to rally on the expectation that the tariffs won't go in. But I think that's wishful thinking. I think the Chinese are willing to wait until the 2020 election, at least, before they're willing to do a trade deal. So I'm going with that mentality, but, you know, anything can happen. So 
with that i want to thank everybody for watching i really appreciate it hit the like subscribe button and that would be awesome leave me a comment and with that we'll wrap it up but thanks again for watching and we'll see you next time